Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Once again, it's a joy to turn to God's Word together, and we continue in our series in 1 Thessalonians. encourage you to turn again to the first half of chapter 4. And if you were with us last week, I remind you that we covered the beginning of chapter 4 last week in its main point. We looked at the main point that God's will for His people is that our lives would be holy, sanctified, such that our lives are remade more and more into the image of Christ. We acknowledged, of course, that we have not arrived in perfection. This is a lifelong process that we grow in more and more. We talked also about those who have put their trust in Christ, how um, our priority is holiness driven by a desire to please our God and our Savior. And we talked about how all of this is driven and empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit that is in us. But while we looked at the main point of this passage last week, I want to return to these verses to look at their details, as Paul lays out a number of specific areas for us to be growing in as God's people. So we'll again turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 3, and we'll read verses 3 through 12. So would you join me as we read God's word? 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, for this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, how we thank you for your word, that you have revealed yourself and your will to us by your Holy Spirit through the words of Scripture. Would you work in us this morning through this word? For Christ's sake, amen. Today's text is nothing less than a headlong collision with the assumptions and the beliefs and the practices of our culture. I think it's hard to imagine any topics that could be more at odds with our current cultural situation than Scripture's commands regarding sexual immorality and a life of sacrificial love for one another. I think if you or I, as a Christian, and many of you maybe have had opportunity to do this very thing, but if we were to try to articulate this passage's comments on these topics, 
to someone in our culture, it's likely that not only would most in our culture disagree with Scripture's comments, but Scripture's comments and instructions would seem so implausible, so, so out of accord with anything that, that many would even understand, that most would, would not even think that these instructions deserve time or energy to respond to them. They are so out of step with what seems true to them. I was reflecting, and many of you would have similar situations, but on a friend I had in college who graduated from college and uh, enrolled in the National Guard, and, and he was relating some of his conversations with his barrack mates who found out that at age 23 he was still pure, and they responded with shock and disbelief. And they questioned his manliness, and they told him he was missing out, and they just generally were flabbergasted and, and had no ability to even begin to understand why he was in this position at age 23. I think this represents where we are as the church. We are no longer in a position where scriptural ethics is a majority opinion. We cannot assume that they are principles which our culture holds. Just three days ago this week, our denomination, the PCA, released a significant statement on human sexuality. And I would encourage anyone who's interested to to look at this statement. It was particularly addressing important questions that have been raised about the theology, the language, and pastoral care surrounding issues of homosexuality and transgenderism. And in the background to its report, the committee gave an excellent and brief description of our culture's assumptions. And they used the phrase expressive individualism to describe the typical assumptions that our culture have. Expressive individualism is the idea that deep within are feelings and desires that need to be discovered and then expressed and unlocked in order to be an authentic person. And As a corollary to this, our culture would say to deny your desires, to deny your sense of yourself, particularly regarding sexuality, is to deny a core part of what it means to be human. It is to miss out on being who you are. And to take it one step further, we would say that for someone to limit or deny my sense of who I am is repressive and a personal attack against who I am. This is where we stand. And the assumptions of expressive individualism have now largely shaped the world that we live in. And it's important for us as the church to recognize this, not so we can issue a denunciation of the culture, but because this is the world we live in. And so as Christians, we have responsibilities. Responsibilities both to be able to to speak to our culture and to be able to articulate a biblical ethic in terms that are are understandable in our current culture, but also responsibilities to recognize areas that we might be impacted by our culture in subtle or maybe not so subtle ways. And to do both of these things, to carry out these responsibilities, to recognize where we might be impacted by the culture, we desperately need the authority and the beauty and the truth of God's word to shine on our hearts and our minds. We need God's word to remind us that a true and solid identity as individuals, a purpose for our life is found only in our relationship with God where we can begin to fulfill our duty to worship and obey and delight in him. Identity and purpose cannot be found in expressing or fulfilling our desires or our feelings. Today's text does just this. 
It is God's word which speaks with beauty and clarity and authority and truth in these very areas. And I think it addresses the two areas that are probably uh, the ones that would clash most directly with expressive individualism. As one commentator put it, the areas of chastity and charity, of sexual purity and sacrificial brotherly love for each other. And so I want to look at both of these issues. And as we do so, I think the main point of this passage is this, that sanctification, this process of growing in holiness, is not a, a, a vague theological principle. Sanctification is a daily accumulation of specific decisions and habits as we choose to walk as God calls us to walk. Well, let's begin where this passage begins, with sexual purity. It's hard to overemphasize how strongly this passage addresses issues of sexual purity. And when Paul thinks about sanctification and holiness, he immediately thinks about sexuality. He does it here. Look at verse 3. If you read verse 3 straight through, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In fact, all throughout Paul's letters, Paul often addresses a list of sins that uh, those who do not know God might practice. And in almost every single list, he begins with sexual sin. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about practical holiness in the Christian's life, and he starts in the first several verses with sexual sin. And I think Paul may explain why this is such a heavy emphasis for him in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that every other sin a person commits is a sin outside his body, but sexual immorality is a sin that a person commits against his own body. Rick Phillips puts it this way. He says, the Bible thoroughly disagrees with the cultural opinion that sex is merely physical and recreational. The Bible holds that it is deeply relational and spiritual, such that two people become one flesh. But for a Christian, a Christian's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are members of the body of Christ. And so to, for a Christian to also engage in a practice that makes our body one with another person in disobedience to God is to tear it asunder in a contradiction of our identity as followers of Christ. Now perhaps even some Christians would fail to see this contradiction or, or maybe they feel that Scripture overstates this based on their own experience. But our own feelings and experience are not always our best guide. God's word, as God's own words to us, is always more reliable. And scripture starts by stating that the reason sexuality is so intimately and powerfully connected to our humanity is that God has given it to us as the clearest image of God's love for his people. That's Paul's point in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, we hear that they shall become one flesh. Sexuality is God's gift to mankind to give us the clearest picture of Christ's self-giving love, his intimate love for his people. And that love can only be properly imaged in the context of a permanent covenant relationship. See, as Christians, we don't view sex as dirty or bad. We view it as high and holy. We don't view it as an appetite only to be satisfied or an opportunity for self-expression. Rather, sexuality for the Christian is sacred ground. 
sacred ground that should not be tread apart from a marriage covenant made before God by the pattern that he has established. To act in any other way is to mar the picture that God has given us of his love for his people. And this is why Paul offers these comments in verses 4 through 8 that are so striking in their emphasis on sexual holiness. You see them starting in verses 4 and 5. Paul says that each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, as a brief aside, this verse is actually considered one of the most difficult verses in Paul's letters to translate. And many of your Bibles will note down below that the literal reading is to take your own vessel in holiness and honor. And some translators have taken that this is maybe best translated that each of you should acquire a wife in holiness and honor. And without going into all the details, I think the original translation we have emphasizing self-control makes the best sense, both of the Greek words themselves, but also the context of these verses. So I'll proceed with that assumption. But this verse, talking about self-control versus lust, exposes the core ethical uh, contrast between Christianity and the world, between those who know God and those who do not know God. It says that those who know God believe that the path to virtue and joy is through self-control, denying our desires that go against God's will for us. Whereas those who do not know God believe that the path to joy and wholeness is through expressing and fulfilling our desires. Here's the fundamental contrast in the ethic of the Christian versus the world. And this verse tells us that biblical self-control is not just about self-mastery, it's about the knowledge of God. See, if if self-control were just about self-mastery, then we would see that at play in all areas of our life. Any athlete or P90Xer or 30-day cleanser can show you self-mastery in different ways. But biblical self-control is rooted in the character of our God. This is why 1 Peter 1 reminds believers that God's call is be holy because I am holy. Our call to holiness and self-control is rooted in the character of God. Self-control for the Christian is an urgent, joyful effort of obedience that's a direct result of knowing the holiness of our God and his call to us to imitate it in relationship with him. For those who do not know God, on the other hand, They have no pattern or motivation for holiness because there's nothing outside of the desires in this life for things in this world to guide them or offer them satisfaction. And so can I suggest that if perhaps you find that a Christian's ethic of self-control and holiness unattainable or maybe you don't understand or or find a Christian's call uh, to to be credible, would you consider first getting to know our holy God? Would you consider first to know the one who calls us to be holy as he is holy and then sends his own son to the point of death to forgive your sins and cleanse you so that you can be holy and who sends his Holy Spirit to live in you, to remake you and enable you to live as holy in his sight so that you can have hope and joy with him forever? If you would get to know our God, I believe you will know the logic of Scripture's call to self-control and holiness. Or if you are a believer, if you are a Christian and self-control is a struggle for you, would you consider your first step not to be just an increased effort on its own sake, but an increased effort 
that is accompanied by an effort to draw near to God and learn more of his character, as we learn more about God and about his holiness, that is what will give us a greater desire to be like him as our God and our Savior. So Paul calls us to self-control and holiness and honor. Then in verse, uh, in verse 6, Paul adds another layer, adding that a Christian should not transgress or wrong his brother. And this is the universal masculine scripture often uses, so we can say that you would not wrong or transgress your brother or sister in sexual immorality. The word in Greek here literally emphasizes that in sexual immorality, you are wrongly or even deceptively taking advantage of another person for your own gain. And in the first century when Paul was writing, it was often the case that someone could take advantage of another. But Paul says that has no place in the body of Christ. And we need to hear that in our own day as well. Our culture tries to meet this concern by offering its one moral guideline of mutual consent. But mutual consent is insufficient because that often just leads us into a case of mutual self-interest where we bring one another into sin in order to satisfy our own desires. And so Paul concludes with his final point, that warning that the Lord is an avenger in all these things and that whoever disregards this standard disregards God. I want to pause here. I want to pause here and remind us of the strong hope of the gospel, which offers forgiveness and cleansing strong enough for all of our sins of any type and enough for all of the sins of the whole world. The blood of Jesus Christ is so sufficient for us. And so for any believer who has stumbled in this area or who struggles in this area, maybe even to the point of addiction in this area, there is hope in Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness. But the door to that strong forgiveness is through genuine repentance. And I think the call to us as believers, as we read this passage, is to recognize equally clearly that we cannot presume upon the Lord. We cannot ignore how strongly God's word calls us to purity. That sexual immorality is fundamentally at odds with the life of a believer and a danger to our souls. So we recognize that, we see that, and at the same time, We draw near in our sin to the blood of Jesus Christ that offers us hope. I wonder if I could take just a minute to apply this passage because I think it has application for every one of us in the body of Christ. For some, sexual sin is a present temptation. Maybe this would be true for Christians who are dating or engaged. A Christian upbringing does not prevent you from facing temptation in this area. And being engaged does not diminish the damage to your walk with the Lord that can occur when we go against his commands in this area. And so again, without undermining the strong hope of the gospel that is true for everyone who comes before our Lord in repentance, without undermining that, I, I urge you to see that few things will set your marriage up for greater spiritual success than the commitment to be pure before your wedding day. Because by doing so, you both demonstrate that the highest priority of your relationship is pursuing God and growing in obedience and holiness with him together. On another side, maybe your present temptation is towards pornography, which freely engages in lust at the expense of self-control and holiness and honor, which wrongs our brothers and sisters both personally and corporately by perpetuating a culture of lust and objectification. This is a struggle for so many in the church, both male and female. 
And you should know that you are not alone if you're struggling in this area. And you should know that there is both help and hope through the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But let me plead with you at the same time that the ubiquity of this sin does not diminish its importance or its urgency for you and your soul and your walk before the Lord. You cannot fight this on your own. Reach out for help. For others in our congregation, though, maybe this area is not a significant sin struggle. For us, this passage still applies and still speaks to us. Because it reminds us that the goal is not just avoiding sexual immorality. The goal is purity and holiness and honor. And so this passage encourages us to, to nurture our marriage relationship with our spouse. To nurture it regularly that we might offer a vision of holy intimacy that demonstrates Christ's love for his church. For those who are single, this passage also reminds us that our ultimate joy is not in sexual satisfaction, but the joy of intimacy with God cultivated through self-control and holiness and honor. For all of us, this passage calls us to obedience to Christ in a way that glorifies him. So in collision course number one, God's word calls us urgently to counter-cultural self-control and holiness and honor in the area of our sexuality. But let's move on to verses 9 through 12. In this area too, Paul offers key comments about our brotherly love for one another that should shape the church and the actions of God's people. And this area too is countercultural. Our current culture often offers us advice that we need to make sure that we take care of ourselves before we consider helping others. And one commentary I saw recently for those in their 20s urged those who are in their 20s not to be burdened with the problems of others, but to make sure they took their time to be themselves, to explore the world, and do the things that they would enjoy. Even in our culture, which values kindness, acceptance, and helping one another meet their emotional needs, Scripture's call here is far deeper and far different. For it calls us to a self-sacrificing love that is modeled after the love of God in Jesus Christ and enabled through the work of the Holy Spirit. As Paul offers several important comments here that should shape our congregation, follow with me through these verses. He says in verse 9 that he does not need to teach the Thessalonians how to love one another because they've been taught by God. They've been taught by God's example. Think of John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son up to death in our place, that whoever believes in him might be saved. Jesus lived a life committed to serving and caring for his people, praying for them, healing them, teaching them, washing their feet. And then Jesus says, I have given you this example that you also should do as I have done to you. But Christians have also been taught by God's word. They've been called by Jesus to love one another. There's a story told of a bishop in Ireland who was shipwrecked off the coast, but he was able to make it safely ashore. And as he made it to shore, he went to a small house of a local minister to seek refuge. Now, he was tattered, and so the minister was suspicious that this was actually the bishop and decided to put him to a test before he offered him uh, refuge in his house. And so he said, well, can you tell me how many commandments are there? And this bishop said, well, that is an easy question. There are 11. And the minister was ready to turn him out of the house for the incorrect answer when the bishop asked for a Bible. And he cited the Ten Commandments and then turned to John 13, 34, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well said by this bishop, because this is God's word to us. Anyone who has put his trust in God has been called by his Savior and his King to love one another just as Jesus has loved us. Then Paul adds after this that we have been taught by God to love one another, but we should continue to do so more and more. You see that uh, in verse uh, verse 10. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Andrew Young is one commentator who offered a helpful summons to us as God's people on what it would look like for us to love one another more and more. He said, we're called to love in multiple directions. This is what he said. He says, Christian love should grow in breadth as it reaches out to embrace more of our fellow Christians. It should grow in depth as it enters more deeply into the hurts and joys of others. And it should grow in length as it forbears more patiently and forgives more heartily. Rick Phillips comments on this saying, when we think in these terms, most Christians will realize that we have only been waiting in the shallow waters of the love that God has for us to know and to show. And so the question for us is breadth, loving more of our fellow Christians, depth, entering more deeply into our care for one another, length, forbearing with patience and forgiveness. Which direction of God's love do we need to grow in most this morning? Well, after calling us to grow in love, Paul moves on in verses 11 and 12 to give us a few specific examples of how we can love one another. As he says, as he addresses this group of believers, that they should do so by aspiring to live quietly, mind their own affairs, and work with their hands. This has got to be some of the most plain meat and potatoes practical advice on how we live as God's people. He urges the Thessalonians to aspire to live quietly with humility rather than seeking grand aspirations for ourselves. Isn't it the case that so often our ambition and our aspirations for ourselves are the things that get in the way of our ability to care for and love one another? And so John Stott summarizes the the irony, if you will, or the paradox of this verse by translating it, the Thessalonians are to make it their ambition to live without ambition, that they might live quietly, humbly, in order to care for one another. Well, then Paul calls them to mind their own affairs and so avoid meddling in one another's business. Because isn't it true that as we meddle in one another's business, that begins to show our lack of care or love for one another. While we're certainly called to care for our brothers and sisters, we all know the danger here, don't we? The temptations to gossip, to wonder about or get the scoop on one another, to spread that word that that begins to work its way throughout our congregation, to insert ourselves into a situation, to be more focused on the issues and shortcomings on others' lives rather than our own, so that Paul says, lest your congregation be split apart, love one another by minding your own affairs. And then Paul calls them to work with their hands. In the first century, it was often the case that those who were poor would rely upon a benefactor, those who were rich for their sustenance. And it was also the case in the first century that working with your hands was often the the path of honest work. To not work with your hands was often a, a way of just traveling and trying to get people to give you money. So Paul's calling 
the believers here to work honestly with their hands so that they would not depend upon others, but rather be provided for themselves so that they would enable, be enabled to be generous and help others, not depend upon others. Now, I think there's a couple of applications for us in the 21st century. Our society's not structured in the same way, but this is a call to diligent, honest work that as much as it depends upon ourselves, we might be able to be a blessing to others rather than depend upon others. Although, of course, as God's people, we recognize that that is not always possible given the circumstances of our lives. But I think there's a second application that I find encouraging here as well, and that is that it is often with tangible, practical, working with your hands sort of ways that we love one another best. My wife and I were remembering a family who easily could have afforded to pay a babysitter for us to go out early in our marriage, but instead came and watched our children themselves. And we felt more cared for by their entering into our lives. In the most recent edition of First Things, Elizabeth Corey wrote this as she reflected on her recipe binder. She said, We should engage in activities that are humble but meaningful, such as cooking for the people we love. They may not remember it later, or at least the details may fade, but we will have formed a small part of their experience. We will have given generously of ourselves, which is worth something in this busy age. I wonder if we as a congregation would consider what quiet, diligent, working with our hands sort of ways we can be involved in to tangibly care for one another in our church. As Paul says in verse 12, as he concludes, the goal here, is that we would not be dependent on one another and that we would lead lives that are lived properly before outsiders. Because, of course, a life lived with foolishness, arrogance, meddling, and laziness undermines any claim that the gospel changes our lives for the better. Whereas lives lived with humility and wisdom and care for others adorn the gospel with the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, as we conclude this morning, I wonder if I can make one final comment. If you've been following with us through 1 Thessalonians, you should note that every single chapter now has called us to love one another as God's people. In chapter 1, Paul commended the Thessalonians for their labor of love for each other. In chapter 2, Paul described his ministry with his mother-like affection for them. In chapter 3, Paul prayed that the Thessalonians would increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And now in chapter 4, we're told to increase in our love for one another more and more. I think God wants to speak to us when he includes this again and again and again in this letter. And as I reflected on this, I had made the decision to preach through 1 Thessalonians back in February. And at the time, the coronavirus was sort of like a minor you know, footnote in the back page of the newspaper. And yet here we are in our situation now. And I think this repeated call for us to love one another is particularly and most importantly suited for this time. And while I anticipate that in the life of our church, our greatest joys are ahead of us as we come back together again for worship and fellowship, in many ways the greatest challenge is also ahead of us. Because as things progress, there will be more and more opportunities for us to be in disagreement or disappointed or frustrated that things are moving too fast or too slow, that we're not caring for the physical needs of our congregation, that we're not caring for the spiritual needs of our congregation. And we're going to need this call to love one another deeply with sincere love for one another and patience with one another. But this is not just an opportunity, of a, or this is not just a threat. This time is also our greatest opportunity. 
Because if we grow as a congregation right now, if we grow in humble patience with one another, if we grow now in proactive care for one another, that takes initiative, that reaches out to one another, that seeks to find out how one another are doing, that seeks to meet needs and share burdens, if we grow now in increasing affection for one another, then this will spill over in the life of our congregation as our church returns to normal. And if through faith we grow now in the grace of love and care for one another, we will also be growing in the likeness of Jesus himself, our Savior, so that we will reflect with greater accuracy and greater beauty the love of our Savior as we show it to each other and to the world. And what could be more encouraging or motivating than that? Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. This passage of Scripture, Father, is full of details, of instructions, of calls to holiness, of practical, everyday summons to live with self-control and holiness and honor, to live quietly, humbly, working with our hands as we seek to love one another. But we know that behind these details, again, is the great work of Jesus Christ on our behalf that you have died to forgive us our sin and cleanse us, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to live in us and to be remaking us into your image and so enabling us and empowering us to live in ways that honor you and glorify you. Father, I pray that our church, that we as your people individually and corporately would grow in our love and care for one another in this time in ways that would spill over into the future of our congregation and into the community around us that Christ would be glorified. We pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.